0: Yeah, this is one of the stunning things I, you know, I found out during the reporting of the book. I mean, look, we sort of knew that Biden and Zelensky weren't best of friends in the run up to the invasion, but we didn't know it was this bad, like screaming match bad.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu.
0: My guest today, Alexander
1: Ward, is a national security reporter for Politico, and author of the new book the internationalists the fight to restore american foreign policy after trump the book tells the inside story of the first two years of the biden administration's foreign policy this includes a behind the scenes look at the decision-making process that led to both the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan and the administration's approach to russia's invasion of ukraine The book is rigorously reported and a must-read for anyone interested in how key players in the Biden administration, including the president himself, crafted U.S. foreign policy in the first two years of the administration. We kick off discussing the implications of Mitch McConnell's decision to step down as the leader of the Senate Republicans, and then have a long conversation about this important new book. So here is my conversation with Alexander Ward, national security reporter for Politico and author of the new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. So listen, I do want to spend most of our conversation talking about your book, but I do know you were a Pulitzer Prize finalist last year for breaking news coverage, so I hope you don't mind if I put you on the spot and get your reaction to the news that Mitch McConnell is is stepping down as minority leader. What do you see as the foreign implications of this kind of, you know, as far as these things go, pretty earth-shattering event in D.C.?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not too sure it's going to have a major foreign policy effect, but what I do think is it potentially signals the changing of the guard, right? I mean, at this point, it looks like Donald Trump is going to outlast Mitch McConnell, or at least, you know, if McConnell goes, it's unclear who's going to take over, but you could imagine it's somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in the kind of old traditional Reaganite foreign policy. It's going to be someone who, even if they might not necessarily be Trumpian in a foreign policy orientation, they might be someone who's a little bit more willing to compromise with it. And so, you know, McConnell obviously was not. He and Trump had a frosty relationship. If it's good news, if not for Trump, if Trump doesn't win in November, then it's good news for Trumpism in a way, because that ideology has a good shot of being more central to the Republican Party with Mitch McConnell out of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, just most recently, earlier this month, McConnell was able to secure I think over 20 Republicans to vote for that collective foreign aid package, which included aid to Ukraine. And I saw on like Twitter yesterday when the news of McConnell's exit was announced that the House Freedom Caucus kind of snidely referred to him as Mitch McConnell, our Ukraine, as opposed to our Kentucky.
0: Right. And there was I think they were saying, look, now there's a chance to get a real Republican in like he's considered, you know, a squish or whatever it is, you know, the pre-Trump era Republican. Look, the, the him moving feels like a changing of the guard. Right. I mean, it's completely possible that one of the three Johns, right, Barroso, Cornyn, Thune could take the job. They are generally speaking more in line with the traditional Republican foreign policy, but they're also more open to what Trump has been saying. They're endorsing Trump. This might be one of those things of degrees, right? This doesn't necessarily mean Trump is fully in charge now. And of course, he might not win in November, but it does mean that his ideas have just a better shot of surviving and of being more considered in the upper chamber with McConnell no longer as the leader. So I wanted to
1: turn to your book. Like I said, really vital read for a foreign policy audience. And I wanted to start our conversation where you start your book, which is that Biden comes into office with an affirmative foreign policy strategy, the so-called foreign policy for the middle class. What is that idea and how did it manifest itself in the early days of Biden's foreign policy?
0: Yeah. So the idea comes from Jake Sullivan, right? The national security advisor. And he was right next to Hillary Clinton when she conceded to Trump. And one of the things he was feeling at the time was Trump didn't necessarily win because of his foreign policy views, but he didn't lose because of them either, even though he was saying some pretty unorthodox things. So Sullivan, you know, from Minnesota, middle-class guy, although he goes to Yale and becomes a Rhodes Scholar, spends four years with friends, kind of in the wilderness trying to define what is it that he missed? How did he lose in sort of a populist fight with a real estate magnet from New York. And what he finds is that there's always been this disconnect, but it has grown a disconnect between Americans and their foreign policy elites in Washington. That There's a sense that America's just been kind of running roughshod on the world without the best interests of Americans in mind. And so this foreign policy for the middle class idea is meant to bridge that gap. And its basic proposition is that any foreign policy action taken abroad or any foreign policy action taken, period, must be easily explained to the american people and have clear benefits for them so let's take for example the inflation reduction act right that pissed off a lot of europeans because they saw it as you know protectionist policy which of course is very funny coming from the europeans but anyway there was sort of clear middle class benefits because this would be jobs for people in manufacturing jobs and the technology jobs working on green tech and you know industries of the future and you're even hearing this argument said more and more when it comes to ukraine right they're saying. Look, if we don't stop the Russians in Ukraine, they're going to take over or they're going to at least attack a NATO country, which requires us to send American sons and daughters abroad, which, of course, is bad for the global economy and bad for their lives. And so that is also bad for the middle class. And this is also their sort of new argument is, well, look, you know, we're sending our old weapons to Ukraine. That means we have to make new ones for our military. And who's benefiting from that? It's people in in factories in Ohio and Texas and Alabama and Mississippi and elsewhere. And so there are jobs on the line. here. So anyway, that's just a a taste of it. But that's sort of the general overall framework. And I think we have to be honest about this, that you don't get a foreign policy for the middle class without a Trump victory, that this is born out of the trauma of Trump's loss. That now that, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton had won, the Democratic Party would still be promoting perhaps free trade and general globalization and foreign ventures and basically the same foreign policy thinking and messaging since 1945. This is a degree of difference, right? It's not exactly that in these Biden years. It's close. But the degree of difference is because of Trump's victory and because of Jake Sullivan's intellectual work.
1: And it manifests itself in a variety of different ways, including a preference that Democrats typically have not had in recent years towards protectionism and protectionism in general and towards China in particular, right?
0: No question. I mean, look, China is a big part of this. We can't deny that. Basically, the argument for the Biden team was, look, Trump got it right on China, generally speaking, that the engagement strategy since the Nixon administration has not worked, that China became more authoritarian and more aggressive economically, even though we tried to be friendly with them. So it was time to change course. And that was to protect basically middle class jobs and manufacturing sectors and other industries. But the issue that the Biden administration had with Trump was that America kind of did the trade war along, that we didn't rally our allies around the dangers of what China was up to. And I should note the Trump team was starting to do that sort of towards the end, talking to European allies about telecommunications companies like Huawei and ZTE, but it really ramped up in the Biden years. And so now the economic fight, let's say, you know, America's got more friends on its side here. And so they think it's more impactful. And they think that now China starting slowly, very slowly, but slightly starting to get the message. That has run out of time, that it can't do what it was doing before because it's facing punishment not only from the U.S., but also from its friends.
1: So, as is often the case with foreign policy, crisis management becomes the overwhelming priority and sucks up much of the time, attention, and resources of the foreign policy bureaucracy. And your book focuses on the two big crises of the first two years of the Biden administration, the Afghanistan withdrawal and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I wanted to start with The Afghanistan withdrawal, you really give a valuable behind the scenes account of the debate leading up to the decision to withdraw. And then, of course, the botched execution of that decision. In terms of the debate around withdrawal, what were the parameters of that debate? And what did you learn about how Biden makes key decisions in that
0: context? Well, look, Biden wanted out. Look, I think we just have to acknowledge that from the beginning. There was a four month review. Biden was truly willing, and he was open to listening to what folks at the military and the Pentagon, State Department, and others had to say, but it was clear he wanted out. He said it on the campaign trail, and everyone that was involved in those meetings with him basically said that's where the president was, that the goal was to show him that either there was a way, a clear play forward or there wasn't. And basically, the entire review ended up being, okay, if you think we should stay in Afghanistan, make your case. And of course, the Pentagon made the case around 2,500, 3,500 troops. But Biden said, how does this lead to victory? How will this help, you know, when we haven't done so in, in 20 years? So he made the decision to leave. So I don't know what that really tells about Biden other than, you know, he did really give people the opportunity to make their case. I mean, one of the things that was fascinating was as angry as the Pentagon was about this and some of our allies were, especially here in the U.S. There were, there were stakeholders that felt that they were truly hurt by the president. You know, there was no real external fighting or leaks in the media. So I think that's sort of one key takeaway is that even if Biden has his mind made up, he does. And he and his team really value this, quote unquote, national security process, which always sounds wonky and bureaucratic. And it is, but it is also a crucial point because you can make a decision as controversial as the withdrawal of Afghanistan and still get general buy-in because the people who disagree with you are heard. So I think that's one big part of it. But then look, the other part of it is that the team deserves some blame here because the intelligence they were basing the decision off of showed that it would take 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take over Afghanistan. That, of course, you know, was a matter of days, really, and not years. And no one really questioned that timeline. It shrunk as the Taliban started to make moves around Afghanistan. We can't deny that. But at the time when Biden made the call, there was a belief that it would take them two years. And this is part of the reason why it took a bit for, you know, the Biden administration thought they had more time to reform the process to bring Afghan allies, American troops back to the U.S., that SIV program. They thought they had more time to do that. They thought it had more time to figure out how to safeguard diplomats who would be staying in Kabul. Right. That was the plan. They thought they would keep the embassy there. They just had to improvise, and they improvised quite well to the tune of, you know, saving 120,000, 124,000 people in an airlift. But the process was so chaotic to do that. And so I think the sort of overall takeaway is that the administration, you know, expected chaos after the decision to withdraw was taken, but they didn't expect it to be that chaotic. And you talk to the Biden's team today or the president himself, and he'll say, look, we made no mistakes. We regret nothing. It was the right strategic decision with everything that's going on in the world. Isn't it great, actually, that we don't have to focus on Afghanistan anymore? And you know, no one offered to resign, and and the president asked no one to resign. So this is still, two years later, still something that they see generally as a success, although we cannot deny the absolute humanitarian devastation outside the airport. And of course, 13 service members were killed in a terrorist attack.
1: Could you discern any lessons that the you know key administration officials the so called a team as you describe in your book drew from that process of deciding to withdraw from afghanistan then executing against that plan in you know a rather hasty way to how they approached the impending russian invasion of ukraine which was the second major focus of your book like is there anything that kind of connects those two or did the administration just kind of view those as two completely distinct events and lessons from one cannot be applied to the other?
0: Well, first, on the A-team thing, that's what I heard they called themselves at the start of the administration, right? That's not my epithet for them. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, a couple of lessons. One was, look, the withdrawal of Afghanistan, you know it was basically done unilaterally. Allies were consulted, but there were allies that wanted the U.S. to remain and and said as much. And in fact, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, after talking to some of the allies, wrote up a memo for Biden saying, hey, our allies aren't on board with leaving. There was a sense that, you know, we went in together, we're going to go out together, it's going to be a group decision. But Biden took the decision on his own. And then once we left, some allies were pretty angry. I recall this pretty tense press conference between Blinken, Defense Secretary Austin, and NATO Secretary Stoltenberg, and, you know, Stoltenberg's like, well, you know, we all agree this is the right thing to do. And Austin was asked about the military and he said, look, you know, we, we set our piece and now we've got a thing to execute. And that was a tough one, right? Because Stoltenberg was apoplectic. He was upset at the decision without it really being made in a sort of a NATO or at least ally format. So all this to say is the connective tissue to Ukraine is once that intelligence starts rolling in about what the Russians are up to, One of the first things Sullivan and his team start doing is talking to allies, saying, look, here's the intelligence we have. We want to move in lockstep. We want to work together. And we kind of want to make sure that this is a collective response, if the Russians do it, or at least a collective effort to persuade them not to do it. That's a big part of it. The other one was really just making sure that there was a long-term focus. Jake Sullivan likes to talk about movies when he thinks about things. And part of the Ukraine strategy was inspired by Austin Powers, believe it or not. There's a scene in which there's a cop, you know, who's like screaming, no! And what he's screaming at is a steamroller that Austin Powers is on, moving extremely slowly from the other side of the hallway. (laughs) And Sullivan's whole thing is, you know, we don't want to be that cop that's just screaming no, but not doing anything about getting out of the way of the steamroller. So talking to allies was part of that. The other part of it was... Letting the Ukrainians know the intelligence we had, setting up sanctions response, setting up a military assistance response, setting up an economic response and working with our allies and coordinating with our allies. So, again, if the Russians went through with it, they would go out in lockstep or at least having some sort of diplomatic play to persuade the Russians off of it. So it was a lot more about coordination and getting ahead of a crisis as opposed to sort of reacting to it in real time.
1: On that point about coordination, you know, Biden has been fond of saying that foreign policy is the natural extension of personal relationships. And one thing that really struck me from reading your book was how acrimonious the relationship was between Zelensky and Biden in the months and weeks leading up to the invasion. I hadn't really seen much like reporting on that before. So that was just kind of really interesting and kind of shocking to me. What was the roots of that acrimony? And why did they apparently see things so differently in the months leading up to the invasion?
0: Yeah, this is one of the stunning things I I found out during the reporting of the book. I mean, look, we sort of knew that Biden and Zelensky weren't best of friends in the run-up to the invasion, but we didn't know it was this bad, like screaming match bad. This was a truly angry relationship. And look, I'll tell you, there are still Biden administration officials working today that still aren't exactly sure why Zelensky took it so poorly, but there are a couple of reasons that sort of come out of it. One is the Ukrainians didn't have the intelligence that the U.S. had, and so they were like, look, if the Russians were really planning this, we would know, and the fact that Zelensky didn't have that intelligence in hand led him to some skepticism.
1: And people should remember that, you know, just like weeks before the invasion, if not less than a week before the invasion, Zelensky was saying publicly, like, look, we know the Russians, they're not going to do this, stop hyperventilating everyone.
0: Right. Look, he was worried about the psychological effect on his people, about the economic effect on his country, right? And no one's really excited when you hear the U.S. say you're about to be invaded. So he was worried about that. Two is he truly felt, he being Zelensky, truly felt that if this was such an imminent crisis, why wasn't the U.S. sending weapons initially? Why weren't the Europeans sending weapons before an invasion? Why weren't there sanctions being placed on the Russians? Like He was basically like, you guys are saying, the, you know, the sky is falling down, but you're doing nothing about it. That's sort of how he felt. So then he thought the U.S. was being hyperbolic. And then let's also not forget that the intelligence was coming in shortly after the fall of Afghanistan. And there was a sense from Zelensky and others in Europe that maybe the Americans were being overly cautious here, that maybe they were overhyping something to make sure they could stay out in front of it and that they wouldn't be caught by surprise again because they were embarrassed by Afghanistan. So a lot of those things. But look, nothing sharpens the mind like having a country be invaded. And basically the moment the Russian tanks start rolling in, Zelensky's like, great, where are my weapons? Where's my help? Come to our support. And now the U.S.-Ukrainian relationship is better. There's no question. It's not particularly great because there's a mismatch between what the U.S. wants to provide, what the Ukrainians want to be given. But it's far better than where it was because Biden and Zelensky were really, really at each other. I mean, at some points, Biden was like, dude, protect your country. Like, get ready. Like, what are you doing just kind of sitting around waiting for this to happen to Ukraine? So, yeah, a truly shocking period leading up to the invasion.
1: And indeed, though, fair to say that Biden and Zelensky mended their fences, kind of culminating in Biden's trip to Kiev, which you describe in detail in your book.
0: I mean, mending of the fences might be too strong. I just think, it, you know, they're again, they're still not the best of friends. They still have a, a pretty strong mismatch in thinking about what's needed. You know, but they have a very mutual interest in the defense of Ukraine. And Biden relishes and sees himself as the Western leader, as the leader of America that rallied the West to Ukraine's aid. And so going to Kyiv was of course a big part of that. There's no question that there's also the added political benefit of going, look, this you know, 80-year-old man was able to pull off the multi-hour train ride and go to a war zone and in a surprise visit. But the Venn diagram of of Biden and Zelensky absolutely meet in the middle on doing whatever it takes to defend Ukraine. Now, of course, Biden does have political constraints here. You know, a lot of the authorization has to go through Congress. He also has to consider a Pentagon that is worried about draining our stockpiles to the point that maybe we can't fight a future war, say, if China were to invade Taiwan. But intellectually speaking, they are on the same page, that they want Russia to lose and that they want Ukraine to win this war.
1: So your book ends at the two-year mark of the Biden administration. There's now a third crisis that began after the conclusion of your book, October 7th and Israel's response to the Hamas attacks and its attacks in Gaza. Are there any kind of through lines, differences or similarities in how the Biden administration has approached that crisis compared to, say, the other two? And how do you sort of think of the Gaza crisis in context of the book that you just wrote? Like, if there's a sequel to your book, and I certainly hope there is, it would include responding to the Gaza crisis. Like, What are some common or different elements in the Biden administration's thinking that you're seeing like, applied to how they're approaching Gaza right now?
0: Well, for one, I mean, I do note in the book that there was a war between Hamas and Israel in 2021 and how Biden responded to And in that chapter, it becomes clear that Biden is pursuing the same approach towards Israel-Hamas now that he was then, which was basically, you know, honey in public, vinegar in private, basically saying, look, we're with you, Israel, we support your self-defense, you know, and then in private being like, hey, do what you can to end this war as quickly as possible. And that worked to an extent, I mean, that fight ended after 11 days, But that was a lot smaller scale than after October 7th. And after October 7th, the context in Israel changed. One, of course, that attack killed 1,200 people in one day. It was brutal and awful. Also, there's a far-right government in Israel now that Netanyahu needs to stay in power. And there's a public that, even though they don't really like Netanyahu, is firmly for rooting out Hamas from Gaza. So the honey and public vinegar and private strategy only can go so far. Because even if the U.S. is saying, hey, do what you can to minimize civilian casualties and get this war to stop as soon as possible. You know, Netanyahu's not for it, his government's not for it, and the people of Israel necessarily aren't for it because they want to see Hamas punished, and likely Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas, there killed. So now you see the administration sort of struggling on what to do and trying to find new levers to pull to, you know, have more sway over the Israelis, and of course that's complicated by the virtue of the fact that it's an election year And it's toxic for any administration to be seen as, you know, not as pro-Israel enough. So, yeah, I think I think it's more from the early 2021 part than it is from Afghanistan and Ukraine. But what I will say sort of generally is the Biden administration's really from the start was focusing on great powers, didn't want to be bogged down with sort of side quests. And for them, the Israeli-Palestinian issue was that. And they really didn't care about it overall until just a few months before October 7th, because the U.S. believed in this bank shot of, hey, if we do the normalization deal between is- Israel and Saudi Arabia, which is arguably a worthwhile endeavor on its own, that that's a better way to a Palestinian state. And as part of that discussion, they were working on ways to send more aid to the Palestinians, get them a, a pathway to statehood. But of course, that's sort of broken down since October 7th. But there are a lot of critics you know, before and to this day who say that letting the Israeli-Palestinian issue fester over the whole of the administration contributed to, of course, the crisis that we're seeing now. got to know, you know, Hamas did what it did. It didn't have to do that. That was its choice. But there have been tons of arguments from the Trump years to the Biden years that a singular focus on the Abraham Accords, right, this normalization, had one key weakness, which was it did not address the Israeli-Palestinian issue. And, of course, you know, that issue is only worse now.
1: So... The administration comes into office in 2021 very, you know, self-consciously trying to repudiate Trump, Trumpism, though appropriating some of the protectionist ideas as part of the rubric of the foreign policy for middle class. But, you know, I have to imagine many in the foreign policy bureaucracy today, including many of the dozens of people you interviewed for this book, are looking at the upcoming elections, worried that Trump may return to power. Are you noticing or seeing any discussions or any policies that might be considered Trump-proofing aspects of U.S. foreign policy in the you know, event that he is indeed reelected?
0: Well, I mean, the day we're taping it, this is the day Biden's going to the border, right? So <laughs> that, I think, is a big part of it, the push on getting more strict immigration Rules in there have been critics from the beginning of the Biden years that you know this administration adopted a lot of the more restrictionist immigration policies from Trump, like the Title Forty Two stuff, etc. The protectionism, of course, from China, the Abraham of cords. I mean, that a lot of these were borrowed, and I think now you're seeing a push on more going after the Chinese on issues of privacy and of technology. But I was surprised at how much Trumpism was in Bidenism. Like that's sort of my. Overall, take from the book is as much as they are the internationalists and believe in a more traditional foreign policy, that they believed it needed to be updated for the 21st century. And part of that update included elements of Trumpism. And so I think if there's any sort of Trump proofing, it's that Biden can say, Look, you know, I'm not a wholesale change. I did borrow some of your elements, but there is a clear difference, right? On Ukraine, on transatlantic security, on general issues of the commons. And on the notion of working with allies overall, and climate change and other things like that. So, you know, I don't want to say that Trump and Biden are the same. They are not. Whoever you pull the lever for in 2024, you're going to get a very different foreign policy. But this still does not negate the fact that there's a lot more of a Trump foreign policy in a Biden foreign policy than Biden seemed expected to adopt.
1: Well, Alex, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations again. Great book. Everyone go out and buy it. I'll post a link to the book in the show notes of this episode. But really, really well done. Vital.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm honored by that.
1: Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive.
0: Thank you.